Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick, and today we've got an excellent interview with cocktail author and certified nutritional consultant, Ariane Resnick, about how we can enjoy cocktails in a way that's healthier for our bodies. As you know, alcohol is technically kind of bad for you when consumed in large quantities and over extended periods of time, but then so is caffeine or salt or even water for that matter. So one of the key questions that pertains to all these substances, including the ones we need to keep us alive, is how can we consume this stuff in the right quantities and how do we control the quality of its effects on our bodies? These are tough questions and Ariane has a really unique way of framing her answers backed both by personal experience and hard science. Before we jump into all that, I want to give you the chance, as we like to do here, to make yourself a drink. And today's featured drink is not your typical cocktail. Oh no. This was the result of a little online research I did after speaking with Ariane about her experiments with bone broth in cocktails. That's right, you heard me, bone broth. Today's featured cocktail is the Bullshot. Careful how you pronounce that one. And it stands somewhere between a Bloody Mary, a Hot Toddy, and a cup of beef bouillon. To make a Bullshot cocktail, you need two ounces of vodka, half cup of beef bouillon, quarter ounce fresh lemon juice, one teaspoon Worcestershire sauce, one dash hot sauce, one pinch cayenne pepper, and one pinch of salt. At least that's the recipe that I found on imbibe.com. And I like imbibe as a good vetted source for my cocktail recipes. And really all you do to make this cocktail is you warm up the broth in a small saucepan. You stir in the sauces and the spices. Or alternatively, you can wait until afterward to add these things when it comes to the garnishes and the seasonings. Depends on how you like it. And then when the concoction in the pan is warmed to your liking and mixed to your liking, you pour that in a mug and you add vodka to that mug, two ounces. The key here is not to add the vodka to the saucepan because what's gonna happen is the alcohol will evaporate when exposed to that heat source and then really you're just left with a cup of broth. Like the Bloody Mary, there's a whole ton of variations you can do with the seasonings and the garnishes for this cocktail, so definitely feel free to adjust the bullshot recipe and accoutrements to your own savory flavor preferences. If anybody wants to go ahead and get adventurous, make a round of bullshot cocktails for you and your friends, definitely tag us on social media at Modern Bar Cart. Let us know how they turn out. We are very excited and curious to see what you come up with. So now that you've got your drink in hand, let's turn our attention back to Ariane Resnick and her book, The Thinking Girl's Guide to Drinking, which is where we focus most of our attention this episode. Some of the topics we discuss include the story of alcohol as it travels through the body from the first sip of your drink straight through the morning after, how to use certain foods and herbs to supplement the positive and curb the negative effects of alcohol, 
phytonutrients, antioxidants, and why colorful food and drink is good for you. More thoughts on bone broth cocktails, of course. A few notes on kindness over a dirty martini with Mr. Rogers and much, much more. As we like to do here on the podcast, we're going to do a giveaway of a signed copy of The Thinking Girl's Guide to Drinking. And fellas, this book isn't just for girls. The information and awesome cocktail recipes apply to all of us. So here's how you win your signed copy. This episode goes live on Thursday, March 1st, 2018. So you have until Monday, March 4th, that's three full days, to hit us up on Instagram, Facebook, or by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com to tell us why you should receive this free signed copy of The Thinking Girl's Guide to Drinking. Tell us why you're excited about it. Maybe tag some folks who you want to test out these cocktails on, and we'll select a winner by Monday, March 4th, and ship it off to you. This episode was a blast to record, and I know you're eager to get down to business here. So without further ado, please enjoy this interview with Ariane Resnick. Ariane, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. What I'd love for us to do as we start off here is just have you introduce yourself to our listeners and kind of give us your background and your story. My name is Ariane Resnick. I am a special diet chef and certified nutritionist, as well as a best-selling cookbook author. I've written two books, and I am currently writing two more. I do work mostly centered around restrictions, how to make food taste really good while having the simplest, most basic, and most accessible whole food ingredients. So I found a bit of a niche in that, and most recently, I functioned from uh, last June to about a week ago as the private chef and nutritionist for Pink, the pop star. Oh, very cool. What was that like? It was awesome. I love her. It was great. <laughs> I wasn't planning on returning to the private world at all, uh, but I was I was very easily convinced. Yeah. Well, how does one become a CNC or a certified nutritional consultant? That is a pretty straightforward online course. There's a number, there are a number of different uh, colleges that are internet centered that offer it. I was already doing work as a nutritionist and I just didn't feel comfortable telling people what to do without some kind of certification. So I ended up getting that a few years ago just because I was already functioning as a nutritionist doing wellness work with others. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think that's a great segue into uh, our little necessary disclaimer that none of the things, even though we're talking about health and how to do things better for yourself, none of this, uh, none of the content in this episode from either you or I is necessarily medical advice. It's not no. medical advice. Um, no, <laughs> so, I'm always real clear about that. We're yeah. not doctors. Yes. And at least as far as our legal team is concerned, you should check you, uh, you should consult your physician before you get out of bed in the morning. Uh, exactly. So. <laughs> okay. Taking that first breath. Ask the doctor. Yes. Uh, so now that we've gotten that out of the way, uh, what made you interested in the human body or health to begin with? Uh, it was how I grew up. I was brought up in a very holistic household with a mom who ran a co-op out of our basement. So it was forced down my throat from an incredibly young age. We had no commercial food. And on the plus side of that, my mother made everything from scratch and she made really delicious, wonderful food. So I didn't grow up feeling restricted or deprived, but had an incredibly ridiculous basis of knowledge about how food impacts our health. 
So I carried that forth with me through my adult life. And I had two different chronic illnesses that I dealt with um, and recovered from holistically in my 30s. And food was a big part of that. Great. So you have this background in healthy eating, in natural eating, and in kind of like a homemade approach to things, which I think you can really see shine through in the book that we're going to talk about here today. The other thing I wanted to kind of ask is how writing and becoming an author kind of came into the picture. And I think that'll take us to, uh, to uh, the book that you're about to release. Yes. So um, I always planned on writing. It's what I got a degree in, creative writing, and it's what I always thought I would do with my life. And somehow I just kept landing back in a kitchen no matter what I tried to do. And I didn't find ever an easy time of getting work writing. Yet somehow it all managed to line up about five years or so ago when I got um, over the second chronic illness and got into the private chef world. I ended up getting the opportunity to start writing articles like for Live Strong, which was really cool. And then my first book, The Bone Broth Miracle, was basically handed to me by a publisher who had read interviews with me as an expert on it. So it was through the structure of that book that I came up with the idea for the next one. Very interesting. So can you tell us what you, what the other books that you've published previously? Uh, so the bone broth miracle was the first one. And in that there was a chapter on what I called broth tales. Other people had called them broth tales, but I thought that sounded strange. So those were cocktails made with bone broth and that was definitely the most talked about aspect of the book when I did media and press for the book. And the number one response that I got from media and then from individual people when I would do talks about it was a really strong level of surprise that I drank. And I was surprised that people were so surprised because we're all just people. And what else? Like, everyone needs to relax. Everyone needs to have a good time. Why was it so weird that I would incorporate my health and wellness perspective into alcohol? So from there and from that chapter, uh, The Thinking Girl's Guide to Drinking was born because I really wanted to show people that you can incorporate alcohol into a healthy lifestyle because a lot of us are doing it. And having a healthy lifestyle does not mean you need to be miserable at all. <laughs> and in fact, I strongly encourage people to not be miserable for a living because that's not wellness. Right. I really like the way that you uh, kind of took this little oddity, this little opportunity that these Brock tales afforded you with this, these media interactions and use that one as kind of a seed for another project and two as an opportunity to kind of flip a really common way of thinking on its head, right? So we, we, we live in this world, at least here in the U S where a lot of our values or the, the things that we, um, hear politicians talk about when they're, you know, discussing their platforms, these, you know, these values that we have are, are very often kind of puritanical. And, and I live mm -hmm. in, I came from uh, Massachusetts, probably the, the ultimate Puritan state in that that's mm -hmm. where those folks landed. So we have blue law, they call them blue laws there. And it's basically things that like you cannot buy, um, 
spirits on a Sunday or, you know, there's these really interesting laws that kind of look down on alcohol. And, uh, you know, if you, if you really start asking questions about where those laws come from and and what purpose they serve, it, it kind of comes out that, that really they're, they're pretty out of date and the people who kind of express surprise or, or form their opinions based on that are just kind of following what everybody else did before them and not really kind of examining it themselves. Yeah, I grew up in Massachusetts, actually, and it is hilarious to visit uh, because you get so used to things on the West Coast like alcohol being sold in grocery stores. Yeah. And all of a sudden spirits are in their own place, package stores. (laughs) Yes, yes. And we can only hope that the package store also has a can return where they give you a little bit of money. Yeah. Well, so that's really interesting. Let's talk more about um, the Thinking Girl's Guide to Drinking, which is your current project. Uh, So that is a book that came out in 2016, uh, in November. And the premise of it is that each chapter is a different whole food ingredient that has one or more properties that uh, mitigate some of the negative effects of alcohol. So it's divided up based on things that if you didn't notice there were health values, you would probably just think were kind of food-oriented cocktail ingredients. Great. What are some examples of those, just uh, to kind of give our listeners a sense of, you know, what what's in that, bo- in that book? Uh, so there's a mint chapter, which is a real straightforward cocktail ingredient, but which also does a lot to help uh, settle your stomach and prevent nausea, which are things that alcohol can cause. There's a chocolate chapter because uh, cocoa has a number of components in it, like theobromine, that will help offset the serotonin depletion that alcohol causes afterwards. Chocolate has a lot of feel-good chemicals. So since alcohol makes you feel real good in the moment, but not so much later, uh, it can help with that as well as Things like cocoa powder directly in drinks add fiber, which slows down the absorption of alcohol into your system. And that's something that I really worked a lot with in the book that the bartender who I chose to help me out with the book was on a different page with because the mixology world says all of our drinks need to be incredibly like double strained and clear. And I actually wanted to include food and herbs and cocoa powders and things that had some thickness to them so that what you get is a more comprehensive food experience out of a cocktail. Interesting. Uh, So did that sort of uh, tension or I guess disagreement between what you were going for and what the overall mixology world usually tries to present, did that tension cause any problems? It made both of us open our minds a little bit. We would do things like try a drink both ways. Um, because we both wanted to create the best drink. So I came to the table with, here are my ingredients that I want to use. Here are the ratios, I assume. She came to the table with her expertise of, that's not a standard formulation. Here's what would make it a more standard cocktail. And we just went from there. So some drinks, I had to, you know, acknowledge, okay, you win. Um, but for the most part, since I so enjoyed <laughs> the idea of the 
creating more of an experience in a drink, um, I did thankfully get her on board with a good number of cocktails that were outside the box in those ways. That's really great. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really valuable to kind of, uh, especially when you're doing something a little bit different like this project is, I think it's good to consult those rules and those kind of standards that are, exist in, in the industry, yes. but then to also definitely leave some space to see where you can kind of try something new or flip that rule on its head. That's the sweet spot in life yeah. is you have to have a basis of foundation to work off of, but you definitely don't need to follow all the rules. Great. So I have a feeling that as we have our conversation here, you'll, you'll be able to kind of give a lot of great examples from your book and maybe kind of entice some of our listeners to go out and, and check it out. But what I, I wanted to jump into was what happens in the body. And there's a lot of, there, there's gotta be a lot of things happening in the body when you drink alcohol from the very moment when you taste the alcohol to the morning after? There sure are. So <laughs> the moment you put something in your mouth, uh, a digestive process happens, which most of us don't realize. Your salivary glands send signals to your stomach to start digestion. So before you've even swallowed the act of you having an experience all throughout your body is beginning to occur. Uh, with alcohol, you add a lot more components to it because you're essentially poisoning yourself a little bit, but you're doing it in a way that feels really good. So it's definitely, it's a multifaceted <laughs> result where, you know, obviously the alcohol itself gets filtered by the liver and goes to your brain. What it does with your brain is similar to a lot of other drugs where it taps your serotonin. So you get happier, you feel good. Um, unlike some other drugs, it can also cause balance issues because of the parts of the brain that it impacts and affects. And so much depends in terms of how your body is going to respond to the alcohol on what you're consuming with the spirits directly in addition to what foods are or are not in your body at that time. Okay. Interesting. So I think many of us have heard those recommendations like don't drink on a full stomach or, you know, there's often even suggestions of what perhaps to consume mm -hmm. before uh, drinking. Is, is that something that you can maybe speak about? Yeah, I talked a lot about that in the book because I think we have some real standard rules that definitely don't apply to everyone because we're often looking to have different experiences than one another. Some people want to go out and like get real buzzed real quick and be basically sober by the time they get home. Other people want to never feel drunk. They want to be able to keep up with their friends and have drink after drink all night long and never feel too drunk. So what you eat beforehand hugely impacts how the alcohol is going to affect your system. And we have these rules that we stick to, like, you know, don't drink on a full stomach. Well, if you're someone who isn't looking to get drunk, you want to go out and be able to make it through an entire evening, you actually should have a bigger dinner because that's going to make the alcohol impact you a lot less. But if you want to have a great time and get kind of, you know, tipsy within a couple hours, it's totally okay to have a real small dinner so that the alcohol actually affects you, drink much, much less, and end up just as buzz as others. Gotcha. And it seems like 
you know, you were, you were talking about how your book was organized and, and you were, ha you had kind of different chapters were dedicated to a food or an ingredient that mm -hmm. could kind of mitigate the alcohol experience. Is there like some way that you could like have dinner with some of these foods in there that would help you to achieve some of your goals? Definitely. So there's one chapter, it's a hard spice life. Um, I think I put a reference to Annie in every book I write. Um, and it's based on spices. So they offer so much in terms of things like reducing inflammation and being antifungal, which, you know, alcohol is terrible for the yeast in your body. It causes yeast overgrowth really easily. So if you have a dinner that's full of spices that are counteracting yeast and inflammation, then the alcohol is going to have less of an effect on those things hours later, for sure. Interesting. So let's stick with the body here. We've, we've, here's what we've covered just to review it. So we know that there's, uh, obviously a digestive response based on, you know, the, the salivary reaction, right? When alcohol enters your body, we know that as it's digested, it's processed by the liver. And then, um, some of the chemicals in the alcohol result in a neurological or, um, a kind of like a, a neurochemical reaction, uh, serotonin. Um, what about some of the metabolic effects of alcohol, especially over time? I feel like people who are, um, perhaps worried about staying fit while being free to consume alcohol or not worrying about it, that, that might be something they would be interested in. Definitely, you want to time alcohol consumption appropriately. The thing with it is that as soon as you start drinking, you are burning about 70% less fat than you were before you started drinking. So if you're having a day, if you are a fitness-oriented person, and you're having a day off where your body is not necessarily doing any fat burning from any kind of activity you've done, that's a perfect day to drink because you're not ruining anything. But if you've had a two-hour gym workout and you've done lots of interval training, uh, weight training, types of fitness that keep their effects going for, you know, a day, two days afterwards, and then you start having cocktails, you've shut off that process like by 70%. So that is a much less ideal time to consume alcohol. It does impact your metabolism in that sense. It slows it down, um, not directly related to your metabolism, but just in general, it tends to make you hungry. So if you're having a day where you worked out like crazy and weren't planning on having a midnight snack, that is definitely not a day or an evening to have a drink or two. Interesting. Yeah, I feel like that's a uh, a really great piece of advice for those folks who run over to the gym right after work on a Friday night before going out. Uh, so that they can get their elliptical session or their treadmill session. Mm -hmm. in. Really what you're saying is that it's kind of diminishing returns if you're then going to slow the effects of that uh, kind of aerobic exercise. Completely. Do the workout Friday morning or Thursday night or Saturday morning. But definitely, to me, if you're going to put your body through that, because I'm of those people who don't think that working out is the most pleasant thing we can do with ourselves, um, if you're going to we're going to take that on by all means give it time to have the effects that it should have don't go negating them immediately afterwards great that's just sad for everyone yeah for sure so what are some things 
I guess, getting more into advice, perhaps. And I don't want you to spoil all of the secrets in your book, because we definitely want folks to go out and buy it. But what are some things to definitely do or definitely avoid if you want to try drinking healthier beyond the things that we've already mentioned? So you definitely want to try new things, but you don't want to start to outside your box. One chapter in the book that I love personally is kombucha. So that works for me because I'm a person who's already drank kombucha, which is a probiotic sparkling beverage that has a vinegary, acerbic sort of nature to it. I'm so used to the taste of that, that to make a cocktail out of it works really well to me because there's nothing that I'm put off by. But if you see a kombucha cocktail and you think, well, I've always wanted to drink this stuff, maybe I should try that, you're not necessarily going to have as great a time because you're not used to the ingredient first. So start out with ingredients that you already know that you love, that you can just begin using more of to get more of their health benefits. For sure. How do you feel? I know this is a trend that I wanted to ask you about. How do you feel about those items that we're starting to see popping up at the supermarkets that are kind of notched as like skinny alternatives to uh, traditional cocktail ingredients or like uh, one example would be like a, a hard seltzer or something like that. Mm-hmm. What, what are your thoughts on these products? I'm pretty opposed to skinny style products at large in the world. I feel that as a thin person, it's not my place to go telling people how to most easily be thin. And I feel that There is such a huge emotional component to what we consume that when you remove some of the goodness in terms of taste from it, you're just not going to have the same experience. The complaint, those aren't products that I purchased, but the complaints that I've heard from people because this is a topic that comes up is that they just don't taste as satisfying. So to me, it makes much more sense to have one really good drink than two mediocre drinks. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's a point of view that we definitely espouse on this podcast. Uh, and it definitely seems to fit in with the kind of homemade, you know, mom running a co-op out of the basement place that you come, you come from, I, I suppose. I think that as long as you're choosing real ingredients, I definitely don't advocate, you know, sour mix with propylene glycol or anything like that. But as long as you're using real ingredients, most people, it's the same thing as drinking diet soda versus regular soda. Most people don't get that satisfaction out of a sugar substitute. So if you're someone who Stevia works for, which like I am, that's great. But if you're someone who knows that sugar is a more satisfying component for you, then think of it as eating a piece of cake. We're not trying to call alcohol health food. There's nowhere in this where even though it does have some proven health benefits, there's nowhere in this where I'm like, this book will make you live longer. It's an indulgence, just like chocolate cake is an indulgence. So treat it like that and enjoy it. Sure. Uh, I had a question about one ingredient that I've run across, which is activated charcoal. And I've heard that there are some potential benefits to using this. Honestly, I don't know the first thing about it. So is this something that you can speak about at all? Definitely. I include that in the book. Activated charcoal is made from usually like burnt coconut. It is what's called adsorbing with a D instead of absorbing with a B. And what it does essentially is run through your system and pull out everything possible. 
nutrients and toxins alike. So it has an incredibly good place in the world, but you have to be cautious with it in a way that a lot of people who produce products with it are not. And this is something that um, I actually have an entire Livestrong article about, where we have products on the market that have charcoal along with all kinds of vitamins and green juices and things like that. And no one is pointing out that while you're chugging down this green juice, the charcoal itself is pulling all those nutrients right back out of your system. You're never getting the opportunity to absorb them. So what I consider charcoal good for is end of the night. When you have had more to drink than perhaps you'd care to, or even if you haven't had too much, but you just want to ensure that tomorrow morning is going to be the good time that you want it to be, that is when charcoal is perfect. You don't ever want to take it before you drink because what will happen then is you will not feel the effects of the alcohol at all, but your body will still have to do the work to process it. So you're basically taxing your liver for no reason and no, um, no reward, but charcoal at the end of the night is a lifesaver for sure. Awesome. Good to know. Where can one purchase this? I suppose Amazon, the place you purchase anything. You can definitely get it on Amazon. It's so commonplace these days. Any sort of even like health, not even health food store, but like drugstore also. I mean, health food stores, of course, do, but even like CVS will sell it because it's been popular for many years as an emergency room uh, used for, uh, item for uh, food poisoning because it. it pulls the toxins from food poisoning out of your system. So it's a real quick way to get people to stop vomiting if they can keep it down long enough. Okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. So I know that this is we're kind of bouncing around here, but I do have one more thing that I would love to ask somebody who has a nutritional background. And it seems like you have a really good way of communicating some of these internal processes so that people can kind of understand them. So that's great. So I'm going to drop the question on you that I always kind of obnoxiously drop on uh, people who go around kind of touting, which is the antioxidant question. Uh, so mm -hmm. whenever anybody goes around kind of like talking about like, oh, this um, acai berry or this blueberry, there's just, there's, it's good for you. It has antioxidants. I always ask them what an anti, like I was like, I always ask them what's wrong with oxygen uh, yeah. or what, like, okay, great. It's an antioxidant. What, what do those do? What does that take care of? And nobody is ever able to answer it. So I know I'm sure that there is a sounds uh, scientific backing to this, but I would love to hear somebody explain it in common speak. I'd be very glad to, uh, to start with oxygen actually has nothing to do with it. What an antioxidant is referencing is oxidation. So oxidation is typically known as a bad thing in general. When you cook oil and it has all those great, like olive oil has all those great health benefits, but then you let it smoke in the pan, that smoke is the oxidation of the health benefits. So you have basically just burned the health directly out. Uh, we have from both environmental impact and the aging process, these things that are called free radicals running through our system. And what that really is, is just oxidation of our cells, that the more cells that oxidize, the more you are prone to disease and to the aging process. Consuming things with antioxidants go in and they scavenge. They get rid of some of those free radicals so that they can't oxidize your cells and therefore your cells stay in a healthier state. So typically, 
That's why we're told to eat colorful foods. When you mentioned acai or blueberries, the specific antioxidants in those that make the difference are called anthocyanins. And that is what the anthocyanins are what color purple food. So purple has kind of been the new green in recent years because the density and the amount of antioxidants in purple food is more concentrated from the chemical components that turn food purple than the chemical components that turn food green. So while green food is wonderful, you should definitely eat your vegetables, uh, purple kale has more antioxidants than green kale. Great. Blueberries and blackberries have more than raspberries or strawberries. Makes sense. Uh, another way I like to think of oxidation, maybe it's definitely not a perfect metaphor as far as the body is concerned, but basically uh, when it comes to iron, oxidation is basically iron rusting. So if you can think mm -hmm. of basically the same thing happening with your cells, then that it's is perfect. kind of a metaphor for what's <laughs> happening. Yes. And as we age, we get a little rusty. So the more we can prevent that, the better. Great. Uh, are there any other kind of bar hacks that you'd like to give or any misconceptions that you'd like to clear up uh, now that you have kind of a captive audience? I think the biggest misconception is that just like I encounter in the food world when I'm teaching people how to cook, that if you're not a professional, you don't know what you're doing and you shouldn't experiment. I think that is so sad. Just because this is how things have been done up to this point does not mean that that's the end of the road. And if it weren't for people being innovative and breaking rules, we wouldn't have constantly great, wonderful new things. So when you come up with, oh, hey, I happen to have this in the fridge or, oh, hey, I always thought this might taste good with that, you hurt nothing by trying it. The worst that happens is that it goes in the trash. But I definitely think that we hold chefs, mixologists, bartenders, we hold so many people in this like exalted place, but we're just people. I never even went to culinary school, but I have cooked for some of the biggest celebrities because I have just taken what I have for talent and used it unabashedly, not caring if what I was doing was right or wrong. And giving myself permission to be creative, there's no way I'd be here now if I hadn't done that. And that's something that I think everyone should at least give a try to. For sure. Yeah, that's that's really well put. Uh, and I think, yeah. case in point, the Brocktails. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and those were weird. And there were some of those that I was like, people kind of drink this. Um, and some worked better than others. But eventually, I got about 10 or so that were all things that I was confident I'd be happy to have if someone gave it to me. Yeah. And that took a lot of strange experimenting, for sure. I can imagine. Is there any way you could give us just a, a quick description of a couple of those? Yeah. So obviously, the most simple is a Bloody Mary. Throw some broth in there. That's real easy. It's a savory drink. One that um, I really enjoyed that other people enjoyed that I didn't expect to go over as well as it did with something that I called a smoked meat supper. And that was bone broth with a shot of scotch, a real smoky scotch like Lafrog. Um, and it really just tastes like having a slightly alcoholic, super barbecue-y cup of soup. Interesting. And was that one a hot drink? How many of the Brocktails yes. were hot versus cold? That was one of the only hot ones. I think there were just a couple. Most of them were cold. And I was more comfortable with that because most cocktails are cold. 
Yeah. Every once in a while you have, you know, a hot cider kind of thing. But for the most part, a cocktail is at least room temperature or chilled experience. I really like the fact that you just kind of blurred the line between like chicken soup and a hot toddy. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I, um, you know, I was always one of those people that would get Bloody Marys and hope they had like enough garnishes that I could call it a snack. Yeah. So <laughs> I like, I like those blurred lines for sure. Awesome. Uh, well, I'd like to jump into some lightning round questions. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to kind of talk about before we did that? No, I'm great. Thank you. Beautiful. Um, we will, as we wrap up, definitely give folks uh, the information on the book and how to purchase it and all of the stuff that we've talked about, folks, including any links I can find about, you know, activated charcoal, uh, maybe some of these Brock tails will also be available in the show notes at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. And uh, with that, we'll jump into the lightning round. So the first question we always like to ask is, what is your favorite cocktail? And if you don't have a favorite of all time, what's something that you've maybe been recently obsessed with? My all-time favorite cocktail is a Boulevardier, which is a Negroni, but instead of gin, uh, it's whiskey, either rye or bourbon. I go back and forth on what I prefer. I think bourbon's better for a super sweet dessert drink and rye is better for a can have more than one kind of cocktail. And then there is an alcohol that I used a lot in the book that I actually didn't know about beforehand called Pedro Jimenez. That's a form of sherry that I love as a cocktail addition in a variety of things. Very cool. So got the favorite cocktail, the Boulevardier, which is also, I mean, yeah, that's also one of my favorites. I, I definitely put that oh. in the top 10. For sure. Mm -hmm. um, what about favorite spirits? Does that differ from the ingredients in the favorite cocktail? Or are you kind of in that same ballpark? I'm definitely a bourbon girl as a go-to. I also really love mezcal. And I've gotten into penicillins lately. Um, I've gotten more into scotch lately. And I think what created that for me when I hadn't been so into the taste of it before was the pairing in a penicillin with uh, citrus and ginger. Yes. Can you describe basically that recipe for folks? You don't have to have the measurements completely correct or anything. So a uh, penicillin is ginger syrup, which you just make by making a simple syrup of equal parts sugar and water with some sliced ginger. And uh, lemon juice typically can be lime juice. Uh, a generic scotch whiskey that isn't necessarily a super smoky one. And then you top it with a smoky more intensive whiskey. When I make it myself, I tend to use the more serious whiskey for a bigger ratio because I love the way the smoke flavor goes. Um, I also will do a little bit of extra lemon. I'm definitely a like bang for your buck, punchy, <laughs> strong flavor kind of person versus a mellow and sweet cocktail type. Yes. Same here. Same here. So are you uh, basically shaking uh, the lemon juice and the ginger syrup and the probably like a blended scotch over ice and then floating mm -hmm. a maybe a smokier thing when you uh, add it to the glass? It can be done either as a float if you want to use a quarter ounce or more or some bars will just spray. There's that little. Ooh. It takes a very small amount to give you the nose and the palate feel of the smoke. So some places, because that's always the more expensive scotch, We'll do just out of a little spray bottle and then other places will do a nice, you know, quarter ounce or half ounce 
float on yeah, top. Yeah, I love my little atomizer. I have one that kind of looks like a, a little mm. perfume dispenser, and yeah. I use that for my absinthe and my Sazerac. So I'll give the glass a little awesome. spritz before I have the ingredients, and then once I pour the drink in there, I'll also put a few spritzes on top so that I get the nose as well. Exactly. Nice. Very cool. So next question is the kind of notorious question. If you could have a cocktail with anybody in history, past or present, who would that be? What would you drink? And where do you go and what you talk about? So this might sound really ridiculous. And I give this, this caveat with anytime I'm asked about who I admire in life. Um, Mr. Rogers is kind of my go-to all time. Like if only I could have talked to him and been like, can I get some help here? Yeah. <laughs> can I do this a little better like you do? Um, I would definitely, he's who I would choose to have a drink with. I know he probably did not drink at all. So I, I picture, you know, like a nice dirty martini, something crisp, clear, straightforward, um, somewhere beachy. He's known for, I've watched so many documentaries about him. Um, he's known for spending a lot of time in Nantucket or uh, on the Cape. Interesting. I did not know that about him. I know. No one ever sees that coming. Um, I think that's that's a big part of me in general is I look like this like hardcore rocker chick. I love Neil Diamond. Um, <laughs> you don't always you don't always get what you yeah, plan on. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Dirty Martinis with Fred Rogers. And the big question here is, are any of the other cast of that particular show present and imbibing as well? You know, I never thought of that. I feel like it's it's much more of a heart to heart where I'm like, please, like, how can I just be nice? Yeah. I just I want like I, I have a quote from him tattooed on my arm and I just I think we all strive or we all should strive to be better people. And, you know, sometimes you're like, I'm there. I'm a great, wonderful person. And then other times you're like, I'm kind of a dick. So I just I feel like he would have some real good advice about that. What's the quote on your arm? It's an abbreviated version of a quote of his, which is there are three ways to the ultimate success. The first way is to be kind. The second way is to be kind. The third way is to be kind. So my arm says ways to success. One, be kind. Two, be kind. Three, be kind. Beautiful. Yeah. It's a reminder. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that that heart to heart would be as intimate if all those little puppets were getting drunk next to you. So no, and then exactly. the mailman shows up and it's all over. Yes. And that policeman, there's, yeah. there's too many. But I did love Lady Elaine growing <laughs> okay. up. <laughs> yes, interesting. Oh, how do you did you ever listen to that uh, PBS mashup uh, where they kind of put him through auto tune? Yeah, yes. that's, that's a really good yes. song. That'll be in your head for days yes, and I days. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Are there any books about cocktails beside your own that have been particularly influential or enjoyable for you? Uh, I think it's great that there are more now being written by women. There was one called Drink Like a Woman um, that came out a little bit before mine did. And in general, I think that it's been such a male-dominated field that it's really cool when women write cocktail books, too. So I think that anytime that arises and you pass by one, you should maybe give it a chance because 
we also have equally good thoughts and opinions. Right. And even traditionally, I mean, who's the keeper of the recipes? It's the grandma and then those get passed down to mm-hmm. the mom. And, you know, that's the way it is in my family. And whenever I need, you know, uh, recipe advice, I, I dial up my grandmother. Exactly. And that's what's so weird about the food and beverage world is that at home it's always considered the woman's job. But once we turned it into a profession, it became a male thing. Absolutely. Yeah. There's I've had some really great opportunities to work with some women here in D.C. who are doing really great things behind the bar and as uh, food entrepreneurs. So big shout out to Carly Steiner, Chantal Singh, especially uh, who were really influential in my learning about cocktails. And uh, the thing that I like about uh, the way they went about sharing their knowledge with me was that it was in a different way than you would get in a traditionally male-dominated setting. And I think um, that was really great for me as a learner because it it took a lot of the intimidation out of the process for me. Awesome. Yeah, when you remove the ego, you can go a lot further. Definitely. Uh, there's another book I will just mention my wife really enjoyed. Uh, I got it for her. It was called Booze for Babes, and uh, I think it's kind of a, a similar thing uh, to Drink Like a Woman, although I haven't I haven't read both of them carefully. Cool. Um, if you could give any piece of advice to somebody who's just kind of starting to learn about or experiment with cocktails, what would that advice be? Before you go experimenting, bother looking up what standard formulations of things are. That is a mistake that I made when going into this book where I did not. I didn't realize that just like with food, you know, a sour drink is typically two ounces of a spirit, three quarters sour, citrus, whatever, three quarters sweet. Um, Take the time to learn before branching out what the basics are so that you know where you're coming from. I could have saved so much time. If I had done that, but having not been a mixologist, having not spent time as a bartender, I didn't know that there were all these standards. And I think that when you get some base knowledge, you have such a better place to operate from to then go experimenting and making changes. Absolutely. I think now would be a really good time to just kind of give your 30 second pitch for the book, tell folks where they can find it and then how they can get in touch with you if they have any questions for you or just want to say hi on the digital platforms. Yeah. So the thinking girl's guide to drinking is available on Amazon and in bookstores like Barnes and Noble. Um, it is over 100 is nearly 120 recipes of cocktails and it's actually about 25% mocktails, which are non-alcoholic drinks, which is unusual to bother including in a cocktail book, let alone a whole bunch of them. But I always feel like people who don't drink or don't want to drink anymore that night deserve something better than sparkling water with lime. So it's fun. It's whole food based and people have really enjoyed how much you can incorporate it into your day because it has so many whole food ingredient elements. It makes sense to not just have happy hour, but also have like afternoon snack, late night snack, that sort of thing. Um, My social info, my website is ariancooks.com. My name is A-R-I-A-N-E and then cooks, C-O-O-K-S.com. My Instagram is chef underscore arian. My Twitter is at Ariane Resnick, and my Facebook is Chef Ariane Resnick. Beautiful. Ariane, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and share all your knowledge about how to drink better. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers.
Cheers. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast was made possible audio and production assistance by Samantha Reed, amazing cocktail insights by Ariane Resnick, and a little bit of hosting magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2018.